Welcome to Building Sustainably, The Road to Net Zero, a podcast by RPS. Achieving net zero carbon requires a transformational shift in the way we plan, design and build. But as the 2050 target edges closer, significant challenges lie ahead. In this podcast series, we aim to tackle the key issues head on. We'll explore real life case studies and provide actionable advice on how to define, design and manage net zero projects and programs. In this series, we focus on the decarbonisation challenge facing owners and operators of large property estates, a challenge compounded by ageing infrastructure, limited funding and competing pressures. Here to make the complex easy, I'm your host, Chris Lavery. As one of the most cost-effective ways of reducing carbon emissions from heating, Heat networks are an important part of the government's plan to reduce carbon and cut heating bills. Furthermore, with recent spikes in whole-scale energy prices, the Climate Change Committee is predicting that by 2050, nearly a fifth of UK heat will need to come from heat networks. We welcome Jonas Hamann, who works for Danfoss, an energy-efficient technology firm. Jonas is Head of Business Development and has been at Danfoss for nearly five years. Jonas has a Master's Degree in European Affairs from Sciences Po, France's leading university in social sciences. Jonas also holds two bachelor's degrees, a Bachelor of Science in International Studies from Roskilde University, and one in Political Science and Government from the Hong Kong Institute of Education. With a passion for sustainable energy and heat pumps, Jonas is experienced in working with sustainable energy technologies, such as district energy and demand-side flexibility, and the policies and frameworks that enable them. We're looking forward to speaking with Jonas about how heat networks an important way to diversify energy sources and the importance of planning ahead in order to meet future targets. Welcome, Jonas. We're delighted you can join us on our first podcast series. We're really interested to hear what you have to say about heat networks and draw upon your vast experience. Would you like to start by giving us a bit of background on yourself and the company you work for? Thank you, Chris, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here as well. My name is Jonas, as you said, and I grew up in the rural part of Denmark, been living abroad for about the five years, played sports my entire life. And then moving back to Denmark, I joined the, the, the company Danfoss, where I've been working the last four and a half years across roles such as regulatory affairs, strategy, portfolio management, and recently business development. As I mentioned, I work for Danfoss. Danfoss is a family-owned manufacturing company from 1932. And the first invention was a very small expansion device for refrigerators. And the company has grown since then. And today we have more than 400,000 different product numbers. We have uh, offices uh, across 100 countries in the world. And there are more than 40,000 people employed today. Wow. So apart from living in a fantastic part of the world, you're also working for a very exciting company that's really forward-thinking. So it looks like we've got a really good conversation that we can have. So Jonas, if you can, can you help us dig a little bit behind the headlines on heat networks? And for any of our listeners who aren't familiar, could you please explain briefly what heat networks are and some of the different technologies that you engage? Yeah, sure. Heat network is basically distributing hot water and it's a communal based. So you can use it either for commercial use or for residential use. And you use it for either domestic hot water or comfort or process heating. And you can divide it into three main chunks. So you have the first part, which is the production of heat. And so that can be based on waste to energy, heat pumps, 
biomass or any of the sort. Uh, geothermal could also be. Then you have the distribution of heat, which is massive pipes running underground where you have the water that is uh, being distributed out to the community or the city even in some cases. And then you have the consumption of the heat. So that would be in the building, whether that's a school, an office, an industry, or if it's a home, basically. And the technologies varies from, as I mentioned, on the production side, you have the heat pumps or biomass, if it's renewable. And then you have, of course, the major part, which is the pipes in the ground. And then you have all of the controls of the pressure of the water so that you optimize the water. And then on the building side, you sort of separate the hot water being distributed with the water that is being used inside the building. And that's for basically safety. And that's the most often that you have that separation of the water. Uh, so I hope that was a, <laughs> a simple overview. That's really good. There's obviously quite a bit of complexity to, to it all. And why do you think they're so important? What we believe is that what is also shown is that district energy or heat networks is one of the most efficient ways to heat up. And it's shown historically that it's about 3 to 4% more efficient. And by efficient, you also lower the emissions that comes from producing heat. And I think today, those are some of the main reasons for why. But in addition, I have to remember saying that it's also about the resilience. So the heat networks are basically hot water that's being distributed. So you have the opportunity also to change the source. If you are reliant on a specific source that you might want to move away from, then you don't have to change the entire system. You only have to add another source. So you be become less reliant on one specific source. So uh, the hot topic today is, of course, the gas resilience. So if you have heat that's produced by gas, then you can add a heat pump or a large heat pump or a geothermal heat or a biomass plant or something like that to then lower the need for using gas for heating up the pipe. So I would say that you have the emission part, you have the efficiency of the heat distribution, and then you have the entire resilience in terms of being able to switch your sources. Okay, so there's a lot more flexibility to this than perhaps you would realize. We can talk about that a little bit later on. I'm just keen really to understand Danfoss's experience based on similar challenges that we have with our clients. So how has Danfoss tackled the energy efficiency and repurposed the heat waste to reach decarbonization goals? So you could say that we have a quite ambitious CO2 emission reduction target, and we have signed up to the science-based targets 1.5. And we have sort of used our headquarter as our sandbox, where we can play with our own technology to optimize the, the now we're talking about heating, to optimize the heating part of our campus. So it's about 4,000 people employed there. And we have our own district heating network between the factories and the office buildings. And basically, we worked on from a very old system where we use steam as heat instead of hot water. We, the steam was about 150 degrees, which is not very efficient. It doesn't matter if you use gas so much, but it matters if you want to use geothermal or more sustainable heat sources. So since 2007, we lowered the temperature in the district energy net by 70 degrees. So today it's about 65 degrees C. And this has allowed us then to integrate waste heat from Air compressors, it's allowed us to integrate waste heat from our own data center. And we also have plans to integrate waste heat from a electrolysis plant 
in the future. And that's basically heat that would be expelled into the air if we didn't capture it and then reused it. And we used heat pump technology for doing that. In addition to that, we also we have our the neighboring town next to the campus where we are sort of sharing the district energy network with them. It's two independent networks. So it's two independent hot circuits. But in between, we have what is called a bidirectional heat exchanger. So that means that we can send heat into the town, the local town, or we can take in heat if we need it into our own site. And that also gives some flexibility and it always allows both us, but also the citizens of this town to get the lowest cost heating as possible. That's absolutely fascinating. And what efficiencies have you seen as a result of that? We have measured it energy reduction. So we have reduced the energy consumption with about 45% in 2007. And that's equal to about uh, 36% CO2 emissions. Actually, this year, we aim to be uh, CO2 neutral on our site, on our headquarters site. I think one important part here is also that it's been done with our uh, return on investment of about three years, including subsidies. If, if it's excluding subsidies, it's about five years. And I think that's also a quite important point to mention. So you're actually already achieving the climate change objectives? also with a very efficient system. Yeah, yeah, it's super exciting. Okay, so I think for us, one of the challenges we see when adopting new energy technologies is a fear of backing the wrong course, particularly in respect to how fast technology and regulation are changing. So retrofitting the heat source for entire estates can be complex and very costly programs. So before investing, clients will want confidence the approach will deliver the carbon and cost savings are being set out to achieve. So how do organizations avoid this risk and can they mitigate it? So on a community, if I start at a community level, I think it's extremely important that you have some sort of heat planning so that you can plan in the most optimal way of ensuring that the community of the area gets heat. And I think that's the learning from the Danish history of district heating where it was mandatory to have that. And basically the mandatory part was to look at the a socioeconomic case for heating, and then find the best possible option for that specific area. So if you look at a very wide area, I think it's quite important that you have heat planning and look at the technologies that you can use there. And then, of course, it's important also at the building level or at the area level that you have specific targets that you want to aim for, and then a sort of like roadmap of how you want to move towards it. And I think it's important to think in not to be too reliant on specific sources, but have the possibility of switching or sharing energy between different buildings um, so that you have that flexibility in your building. If it's that we are talking about, often we would not advocate for scrapping the existing technology that is installed. If you want to move from, let's say, a boiler to a heat pump, then keep the boiler in and use that as backup if something happens. And the same goes if you have a district energy network, you don't necessarily want to scrap the existing technology that you have if you have the space for it, but you should add additional, it could be waste heat sources from a supermarket or data center or something like that, and then add that into the network. So you have that sort of flexibility in your own grid. So there are it's very important that you have the plan, the target, and then the ability to change your source. Okay. So it's interesting you talk there about flexibility, but you also mentioned about gas boilers. 
So in the UK, the government are looking that gas boilers will be banned in all new homes by 2025, with a goal to eliminate new fossil fuel boilers by 2035, with a claim that heat pumps will be the answer. So I just wondered what your view is on that. And should heat pumps be the sole heat source for a heat network? I think heat pumps is definitely part of the answer. In our experience, the each system is basically unique. So you have to look at that individual system and see how you make that most efficient. And when we talk about heat pumps, there's a lot of talk about the residential smaller units that you install. And when I talk about heat pumps here in the heat networks, then I talk about heat pumps that are maybe 25, 30, um, from two megawatt up to maybe 25, 30 megawatts. So much larger heat pumps. And especially right now, there's an extremely good case for installing a heat pump in a district energy network as the efficiency of the heat pump is a rule of thumb around three. So you have three times more efficient production of heat than you have with a gas boiler. But again, what we see is that you have a mix. Maybe you have an electrical gas boiler in your district energy network or your heat network as a, to use for peak times where there's a high consumption of heat in the network. And then you, have, you use the heat pump as a base load. It could also be a biomass plant. It's a bit, then you would use that as a base load in combination with the heat pumps. So I definitely think that there would not be an issue to move away from gas boilers into a mix of district energy or heat networks with heat pumps. But again, I think it really depends. It also depends on the temperature that you need in the house on the secondary side. So if the installation is installed after very high temperatures that you have very small radiators inside the house then you need to have a very high temperature which makes the network not very efficient but that also means that it might be difficult to get to 120 degrees or something like that with a heat pump so then you have to balance it out by either having biomass or something like that that is a bit more that can reach higher temperatures and or make renovation on the inside the house on the secondary side where you have a better balance around in the building you will have maybe installed the newest digital thermostats maybe in some areas you will have the possibility to renovate to underfloor heating so you only need like 30 degrees inside the house and then a boost for domestic hot water so it is really to balance out these kind of things obviously there's a lot of pressure at the moment financially on our public sector clients so competing demands for investment. So how viable do you think this is from a cost perspective and also from a program perspective in terms of times it takes to implement this? I just wondered again, if there's any examples you can give where you've been successful installing this. So right now, there's a big run on district energy in, in Denmark. And basically where you have it installed, it's faster to extend the network. And what the government in Denmark has done is that they basically that they have um, they have said that every Dane that is not on district energy should know if and when they could come into a district energy network by January this year. And then it can be, if it takes maybe two years or so, then it can be subsidized meanwhile to get that compensation for being on a more expensive fuel, because it's also about getting a critical mass of users on the network. So you have that, yeah, you could say, economically uh, return on investment for the on the heat networks. I think it's also important to. I think that's why net heat planning is so important. That the areas really think through 
where is it that we want to invest and make that analysis visibility study of what is the most efficient way of getting heat in, in any given area and then use that money or investment into whatever that feasibility study shows. In general, with our experience and also a report that was launched by a European group, it's called Heat Roadmap Europe. It says that there's a saving potential of about, or it's, it comes with 6% less costs to move towards district energy. If you increase the uh, district energy networks in Europe from about 4% today and up to the 12 to 30, it's a quite wide range but percent that they have estimated that it's feasible. So really, one of the key things here and the key messages is upfront planning and putting as much time in upfront in terms of planning this. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So a little bit earlier, we talked about diversifying the technologies you invest in, and that can help to spread the risk of backing the wrong horse. What other risks have you identified and do you think should be considered? The diversification of technologies, especially on the heat production side, is quite important. And then once you have the network installed, but also in the planning of the network, there are also digital tools that helps optimize the way that the network is sized and calculating the cost of getting an additional user on the network or additional home or office on the network. So also to have that analysis of it and digital control once it, it's installed so that you can optimize the way that you produce your heat by having insights to when is it consumed so that you don't have that overproduction of heat in the network. And I think that is also quite important when you talk about the technologies that should be be used and how you can help getting insights into your heat production, heat distribution, and heat consumption. And in the end, it will also allow you to have more advanced control, which means that you can maybe preheat your building a tiny bit before one wakes up in the morning. As an example, I wake up around six o'clock in the morning. Then if the district energy utility can see that as a pattern in my heat consumption, then they can preheat the water in the pipes in, in my home at maybe 5.30. And then that equals out that peak a bit in the morning if all my neighbors also wakes up around six o'clock, but the neighboring building next door wakes up at 6.30. And that lowers the cost for everyone. So having that digital control, I think, will be more and more important in the future. Also, because the historically, you have had heat production from one point, as an example of a gas plant or something like that. But in the future, also encouraged by EU legislation in Europe, it has pushed forward to use waste heat from different cooling facilities. So basically, whenever you have cooling, you have a byproduct that's heat. And that is waste heat as a data center supermarket. And using that and bringing that heat into the network lowers the consumption, lowers the cost of heat. But it also makes it way more complicated to control. So when should you use the heat from the data center? When should you use the heat from the biomass plant? So there the planning of that becomes quite important to know what the cost of producing that heat is. So that was a very long answer, but to sum it up a bit, I think you need to have, especially on the source side, I think it's quite important that you have some sort of flexibility in the sources. And then the control side will become even more important in the future. And also it's very cost efficient uh, to have that installed. So Jonas, my final question, and then it really ties in with some of the things you just mentioned there about practical advice is, 
If there's an organization listening to this today that's looking at following a similar path of moving down this particular route, what practical advice would you give them? And also, can they start on the basis of little by little? I just wondered what your advice would be there as well. Yeah, there are many companies that has experience in the field, and I know that many would be interesting to share, myself included. So they're, of course, always free to reach out. And I think it's it's important that you have someone that helps with that fleet planning because it can be a bit complicated. It doesn't have to take a very long time, but to have that overview, set targets, and then targets for emission reduction, targets for energy consumption and these kind of things. And then, as you said, I think it's also just you need to get started because we have seen again and again projects that have started, made feasibility studies, re-evaluating, making new feasibility studies, re-evaluating. I think it's also important that you need to get going at some point and you can, in principle, create small. So if it's a bigger area, let's say an industrial area, you can create small islands. So you can start with one or two buildings only have a heat distribution between that. But then in the planning process, already plan that you then in a year or two connect to the five, six buildings around it. And then you slowly grow that network, which makes the CapEx installation, of course, a CapEx cost a bit bit smaller. And then you also learn a bit about every time you do this, because there will be a lot of practical challenges as there are with any you could say renovation at home or also these. And I think it's it's quite important also to get that learning. But it, I think just get started, have that master plan in mind, get started, and then you can grow incrementally. Fantastic. Well, Jonas, that's been a fascinating conversation. I think you've really shared a significant amount of practical advice with us based on a wealth of knowledge and experience. So thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Chris. It's nice talking to you. Thank you. Building Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero podcast is brought to you by RPS. To find out more about RPS and how we can help your organization achieve its net zero targets, visit rpsgroup.com. And then make sure to search for Building Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And finally, on behalf of the team here at RPS, Thank you very much for listening.